What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast. A podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I've got a very special guest with me. My guest this afternoon is Ben Dawson. Good afternoon, Ben. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm fine, thank you. And you? Yeah, perfectly well, thank you. Uh, ben, I just want to thank you again for your time today. Um, and Ben, for those that maybe aren't too familiar with you, yourself, would you mind just giving us a bit of understanding of who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you got to? So Ben Dawson, head of coaching at Newcastle United um, at the moment, at this moment in time. Um, in terms of coaching and you know how I got to where I am at the moment, um, originally worked in the community programs in Newcastle, both for the city council and for the, the football club's charity, um, working part-time in the academy. Got an opportunity to go and work for the FA as a, a coach developer, working in the professional game, and then the opportunity to come back to the club, be about six or seven years ago now, as under-23s coach, and then moving and, and being promoted from there to the head of coaching role that I'm in now. Brilliant. And you know, you talked there about obviously starting off um, in the community, moving over eventually to the FA and now back at the club. Just want to take you back to the start of your coaching journey. So you know, where did that passion for coaching first come about and when did you know that this is a path that you wanted to take for yourself? I think the, the, the passion for, for coaching probably came at a, at a later date. Um, I remember doing the junior team managers at the age of 16, which was the you know, the level one equivalent. Um, level two, or the coaching certificate as it was at the time when I was 17 and I did the B licence at 18. And that was more a, a case of preparing for the future because I was still in that that bubble of I'd, I'd been at clubs, I'd been on trials, I'd be, you know, I'd been offered YDS terms and then not, and then what am I going to do? I'm going to stay on at school. I'm going to try and play somewhere. So I was still in that 
you know, mindset of wanting to try and still play professionally, um, but knew that I had to have some sort of backup if that wasn't going to work out. Um, so probably from the age of 16, I was doing little bits and pieces in terms of coaching initially with those community programs, just on a casual basis alongside alongside playing. Um, and I actually ended up going going out on scholarship to America. So stayed on at school for, for sixth form or you know, college, whatever you want to call it. Um, but managed to to get that opportunity to go to the USA and, and spend three and a half years out there um, playing, obviously getting a degree. I would still come back and coach during the summer and, and over the Christmas period, um, again, within the community programs. Um, came back from the States after three and a half years, got the chance to play up in Scotland in what is now the championship. Um but again, when I did come back and, and move back to the to the country, still coaching alongside that, kind of knowing that as much as I had been given an opportunity at, at that level, it probably wasn't going to be forever. Um, and then probably at about the age of 25, 26, I was still playing, you know, non-league up in up in the northeast, which is a good standard. There's some good players at that level. Um, working full-time for the City Council in a community coach position and, and working at the academy part-time and kind of realised that if I wanted to progress and work with some of the better players in the older age groups, a lot of that tied up Saturdays, which meant then making a decision between still trying to play and maybe working with one of the younger age groups um, or shelving the playing days and, and focusing on it in our career. Thankfully, and you know, touch wood, it's, it's been the best decision. Um, you know, if, if I hadn't made that decision so early, then I don't necessarily think I would have got the opportunities and the experience needed to, to get to the role that I'm in now. Mm. You talk about you know, having a bit of a, I guess, a decision to make around 25, 26, just to kind of paint a bit of a timeline then. Um, how old are you now? 40 yesterday. Okay. Well, happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's, I was just saying to one of the, one of the players today, he was, he was saying happy birthday and all the rest. Now just saying how quickly the time goes. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, it just seems like yesterday that I'm, I'm doing the junior team manager course as a 16 year old and, you know, learning about traffic lights and, you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, Fast forward, you know, 20, 24 years and all of a sudden you think of all the things that you've done and you've been exposed to and experienced and it's gone so quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you obviously touched there, obviously starting out with the junior leaders course. Um, things have changed massively, I would imagine, since since you took that qualification and, and where, where the qualifications are now. I mean, just to kind of paint a bigger picture than a um, pro license holder. Yeah, um, I'm not, I, would, I would assume you've done the advanced youth award as well, have you? Yeah, advanced youth. Yeah, um, yeah. I did the the pilot course. Actually, it was the the year that I joined the FA as a coach developer. So, um, was fortunate enough. The timing was was perfect. It part of that pilot course for it, and that that in it that course in itself has evolved and moved yeah. on. 
hundred percent. So I mean, I, I mean, I, I remember doing my advanced youth award a couple of years ago, and you know, I think I consider myself quite fortunate in some ways that I, you know I'd had been exposed to maybe some of the older older coach education pathway as well as some of the new pathway, um, and you know, have almost a bit of the blend of the both. Um, now, just for you going through that, what are your big and obviously having time at the FA and going through the pilot course yourself? What are your biggest uh, observations in terms of differences between what the pathway was then? what it is now and maybe what it offered coaches back then and what it maybe potentially offers coaches now? Um, oh, big topic. Could spend all day on this one. Mm. Um, I, I think there's benefits to both. I think what we've been guilty of in, in certainly in this country from, from my observations and my experiences is that we've put all of our eggs in one basket and then oh, no, that's not necessarily working that well. So let's put all our eggs in this basket over here and gone completely the other way. And I think we're at the stage now where we're realising that there's benefit to everything. And the trick and the key is just to find the right balance for the situation and circumstances that you're in and the players that you're working with. Um, I think we massively miss... The, the Dick Bates of this world, the, the Steve Rutters, the Jeff Pikes, the John Peacocks, all those people that I remember being on you know, my A-licence, you know, to the point where you, you're at Little Shoal for two weeks. You've got one day off in the middle weekend. You're having a blowout with a few beers on the, on the Friday night. But on the Saturday morning, I remember as a first year, we were all up at nine o'clock to go and watch Dick Bates, two my markers and sweeper session with the year two candidates on the Saturday morning without fail, every one of us there. And that teaching of the game, you know, like that, the, the little details of, you know, individual units and team was almost, uh, it almost became frowned upon that you couldn't stop it and tell players and give them some of that detail. Um, and I actually think for, for me, that was really beneficial. I played the game at a decent level. I watched game after game after game to try and... But the knowledge that I got from that course in terms of the technical detail around football was outstanding. And then we almost moved away from that where it became you know, like an ugly thing to say, oh, I'm going to stop, stand still, or let me take your place and I'm going to demonstrate for you. Um. So I think that, you know, that's massively missed. Yeah. Um, and like I say, I think we probably went too far the other way where it was, yeah. you know, th this thing about let the game be the teacher. And then everybody just st stands back. And, uh, you know, some of the observations I've had of coaches over the years where they'll do most of the coaching in the technical practice at the start. They'll get into the skill practice and they'll do a little bit less coaching. And then they'll get to the game at the end and then stand back and say, oh, well, it's over to the players now and it's, it's their chance to show what they've learned. And I always go back to, I think, well, if you use swimming as an example, so if you've got three different types of sessions, you've got um, stand on the side of the pool and practice your front crawl, practice the stroke, then get in the water with some armbands on and practice the stroke or get in the deep end without any armbands on 
Now, which one of those three needs the most help and support? Well, it's going to be the and one. It, it, yeah, they can only... And, and that's the thing for me. I think coaches have to get the right balance of how much you tell and show and how much you let the players figure out for themselves. Um, how much do you ask questions? Mm. Um, but they also need to have a balance of how much they work in the different types of practices. Mm. Um, the, the biggest test is the game. Mm. And surely that's where they, where they need the most support and the most help in whatever way, shape or form that looks. 100%. I think, you know, I totally agree with you. I think it has shifted from being one end of the spectrum to right down the other end of the spectrum. And it's almost like we've almost lost that, that, that technical aspect a little bit. Um, you know, obviously there's coaches from you know, previous generations like yourself where they've probably been able to, you know, have that and still hold on to some of that stuff and maybe see where it can kind of blend in the newer stuff. But yeah. the coaches who are going through the pathway as it is now and they're relying solely on the education pathway, they're going to look to that. Um, and, you know, I, and I, I made a comment recently and I had a discussion with a few people recently around the idea that I think because it's not, you know, I definitely think it's gone in the right direction in terms of making more holistic. Yes, the four corners and all of that stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. However, I think a lot of coaches now are being allowed or enabled to hide behind the four corners when they don't actually understand the technical detail. Yeah. Um, because they can go down that, down that path of, oh, we're going to let the game be the teacher. Well, actually, the game is just a facilitator. You've still got to help the players learn. You, it, the, the game and football is the, is the most important thing. So uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer that um, I look at the four-corner model differently. Mm. So I have a, a small circle in the middle split into three, so a little pie diagram with physical, psychological and social in and a big circle around the outside, which is the game. Yeah. So the, the, the three components in the middle all speak to each other. They're all, they all interlink, but ultimately they're all there to make you better at the game, mm. at football. Mm. So if we're, you know, if we're working on a playing out from the back session, well, what are, depending on the type of day that we're working on, what, what, how are you going to get that physical component to help playing out from the back? How are you going to get that psychological component? How are you going to get that social component to help the football be better? Mm. But you also have to understand the game. Mm. And I think a lot of whether people are relying on it or they're just taking it for granted is there's a lot of, a lot of information available now online and on social media. And if I'm brutally honest, a lot of it isn't very good. Mm. It, it's somebody's watched the game and thought oh I know what Pep Guardiola's doing he's doing this and I'm going to put some markers and some arrows on this clip and some people will watch that and go oh that's brilliant that I'll copy that mm. but unless you've spoken to Pep Guardiola you've got no clue what they were trying to do in the first place totally agree and I mean I've... and do you understand why they're doing it mm. which is the, that, that's the most important do you know why they're doing it Hundred percent, and I think you know. I speak for one of the things I've done over the last couple of years. I've been I've been working as a as a coach educator myself. You know, de delivering some of the courses at the, at the grassroots environments, and actually, I, I really try to emphasise for them. Look, no matter what you see on this course, what you see elsewhere, don't just copy the practice. Ask questions yeah. about why the practice might be used, and the practice could be great, but we've all been there where you might see a practice, say, I'm going to take that, or you come onto a court, you say, right, 
he's just done a fantastic practice. That's Saturday, Saturday's morning session is ready. I know exactly what I'm going to do now. And it doesn't work out the same because it wasn't designed for those players that, that you're going to do it with. Yeah. And even if the practice, you can use the same practice, but there's still going to be certain factors you might have to dial up and dial down on because of the environment that you're working in. And, you know, use the example of Guardiola. You know, we talk about Rondos as an example. Guardiola is massive on them, you know. But he might be designing a Rondo in a particular way or asking certain players to perform certain ways because it might mimic or replicate or link closely to maybe the opponent on the weekend or the weekend or the week off. Yeah. And unless we start to become more aware and start asking these questions and becoming curious about these things, we, we're just putting things on for the sake of putting things on rather than designing them around the needs of the players in front of us. Um, so I guess, you know, on, on that then, it'll be interesting to know maybe what are the key fundamentals for you and your own philosophy and how does that then differ or, or compare to what you guys have got in place as a club at Newcastle? I've... I've probably been quite fortunate with with that in that stepping into the to the role as head of coach and uh, the initial bit of work that's still ongoing is trying to to get some consistency and alignment across all of the age groups. So implementing a game model, um, implementing a coaching philosophy. Um, we've just recently done a you know a CBD a quick coaches meeting the other night with you know getting ready for the we were hoping the players would be would be coming back so getting the staff ready getting them thinking about you know some of the the key fundamentals for us so asking the staff to think about always working in a um in a way where the the session progresses through gradually through technique skill game but you know what those practices are is is up to the coaches. Um, making sure that we cover the four moments of the game throughout the week. So rather than having a a syllabus where it's you know we're six weeks on playing out from the back or six weeks on this or that, um, you've got a specific area of the pitch to work. So at nines, tens, elevens, we work on halves. 12s, 13s, 14s on thirds, and then 15s up to 23s, we work on quarters. Um, so having a specific area of the field and a specific moment of the game, that's what you're working on. Now, you know, coaches, you know your players best. What is it that they need in terms of the, the sub-principles and sub-sub-principles underneath that? Can be more technical, can be more tactical. You know your players, you know what they need for that. But crack on. But then the next night, it's a, it's a shift in focus to a different moment of the game. So it's a bit like for me going to school, you have a maths lesson, you have a physics lesson, you have a chemistry, you have an English, you come back in the next week and then you're back to, you know, the, the, the same topics again, the same moments of the game, but maybe it's just in a different order. Um, but I'm keen that either the program and the curriculum gives the players balance. I think, the framework that we've put in place and the re the restrictions around what the coaches can do are enough that there's still enough ownership and freedom for the for the coaches to work how they want to work in a balanced way and to design whatever practices they think are necessary for the players and for, for that situation and circumstance and moment in time. Um, and then the, the consistency of the game model just allows us to um, more easily move players back and forward through the pathway. 
So if we're asking the same things of a kid in the under 12s and he steps up to the under 13s, that my opinion was always that the step up is hard enough, stepping up an age group. But then if you are changing system or changing role or changing, it just makes it two, three, four times as hard for that kid stepping up. So why not have some consistency from, you know, nines right the way through where you can't step up age groups and step back and it doesn't feel that big of a jump anymore. Mm. Just want to kind of take you back to something you touched on there, and you know, in, in that, um, just maybe going a bit deeper, some of the viewers and listeners can, can kind of understand what you meant by it. Um, you talked there about going from full pitch to halves and then into quarters. Yeah. Different ages. Do you mind just going a bit deeper on that, please? Yeah. So we've uh, looked at you know how many numbers have we got on the pitch? If it's you know seven v seven, um, looking at the game model, looking at the size of the pitch. That at those age groups, it's about attacking and defending. So for us, on the in-possession with the under nines, you're either playing out in your defending half or if you're in the attacking half, you're playing in, you're trying to score. If you're defending, it's you know preventing it at the back end and up the top end, you're trying to dictate what teams do. And then the same for the in and the out of possession. Um once we get to the uh, thirds, your pitch is generally 90 yards long, so we still work in 30 yards. So the, the, the nines, tens, elevens that play on that smaller pitch, it's generally a 60-40. So 30 yards, 30 yards. Once you get to the thirds, it's generally 30 yards still, 90 yards um, in terms of that pitch. So we have a, a, a middle section. Um, and then with the older ones, Again, we'll roughly keep it to, to 30 yards. So I, I'm a big believer that there's a distinct difference if you're, if you're playing out from your goalkeeper in and around that last 30 yards of the pitch near your own goal to then if you're in the next 30 yards up just underneath the halfway line. I think the game at the top level looks vastly different if your back players are on the ball in that position. And the same then when you cross over the halfway line, I think if you work on thirds, the, again, there's a distinct difference. I think the, the 30 yards closest to the opponent's goal is about your combination play, your crossing, etc. But you've got to work to get the ball in there. So once you're over the halfway line, you've got to work to get the ball in that last 30 yards at the top level. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a clear distinction, but it again, it... It provides a, a clear framework and outline for the coaches about what they need to be working on. Um, there's clear objectives for those areas of the pitch in all four moments of the game. Um, and, and fundamentally, what underpins that is the principles of play, which again, I think have, have, been, have been missed or neglected. In, in recent times, I, th- I think if you asked a lot of coaches... Go on, tell me what are the attacking principles of play. They'd start talking about 1v1s, about wall passes, uh, uh, where, you know, disperse, support, movement, penetration, their principles of play. I think one thing I would say that on, though, is that um, I totally agree. Um, I think what hasn't maybe helped some coaches in that is the terminology is constantly changing. Yeah. they, they, they find it difficult to understand actually dispersal, it, what it is now is creating space. When I'm creating space. Education yeah. 
yeah, dispersal before that it was um exploit the space or whatever it was prior to that. Um yeah, I think you had level level two was um create, maintain, exploit space, and out of possession was deny, restrict, predict. That's the one, yeah. And I think Something I'll... like that, yeah. And then once you went to, to B license and A license, you then started to get into the the, the more detailed ones, yeah. 100%. So no, I totally agree with you on that. You know, thank you for sharing that as well. Um, I guess kind of, you know, something else that you touched on, you know, you've, you're currently sitting as a head of coaching at, at, at Newcastle, um, but you initially went in there working with the PDP, the 23s. Yeah. What was that transition like? And, you know, would you say that you've naturally assumed into a head of coach role because maybe that's where your background was before going into the, the club and being a coach developer? Have you naturally just taken the skill sets and kind of moved on with it? Or would you see yourself as eventually wanting to go back into actually the on-the-field stuff? Um, oh, I, I think I've been really fortunate in terms of my my luck, opportunities, pathway or whatever you want to call it I think it's it's quite unique when I think about the experiences and the opportunities I've been afforded um, working with the FA um, was one of the best educations I've had in terms of yes I was going into educate and support coaches in the professional game from under nines up to first team in six clubs and I would generally, you know, averaging it out, probably visiting those clubs once a week. So I got the opportunity to work with um, a Neil Redfern at Leeds and sit and talk with him. I got the opportunity to, to sit in Dave Parnaby's office for hours on end and talk about coaching programs, coaches, you know, what are we teaching them, etc. Um, you know, I got the, the, the chance at Sunland working with, with, Jed McNamee and Elliot Dickman and you know those types of people. Obviously, the lads at Newcastle, I knew um, Hartlepool and Bradford. You know that there's a lot of good coaches out there, and that that role that allowed me to go and yes, offer my support, but also educate myself. You know, I spent almost two years doing that, traveling around those six clubs and, and yes, getting getting people through the youth award qualifications and A license and and doing individual one-to-one support, but also picking up things that I thought if I ever got back into club football and day-to-day working with players, what, what would I take with me from that person, from that person? What would I not take with me? What did I not agree with? I thought, oh, that's that's not for me or that. Um, and I had a, like I say, I had a great education in, in my time at the FA, um, completing the, the Advanced Youth Award, um, given the opportunity to be part of that Elite Coaches Award with, with Dick Bates, um, as well, where, you know, he, he emptied the contents of his brain over an 18 month period. And, uh, you know, I was one of 16 people that was given the opportunity to to be party to that. Uh, just that unique set of experiences, circumstances, opportunities, look, whatever you want to call it, that I've had, which I think allowed me to step in back into club football and into that 23s role with a clear idea of how I wanted to work. And yes, there's been little things have changed over the last few years. Um, 
But I think that clarity alongside that experience of being a coach educator naturally ended up with me having those discussions about the head of coaching role and trying in our case to get that alignment and consistency right the way through through all the age groups. No, I think you know, it's, it's certainly, you know, it would seem like almost a natural transition. You've had some of that experience working. And I think, and I totally echo what you're saying, it probably would be a great education in the fact that you're constantly out there on the grass, in the, you know, behind the scenes with the multiple discipline team, looking at all the work that's going on and having the opportunity to see other people work firsthand and then have those, on, you know, those hot reflection discussions. Yeah, you know, what's happening, why they're doing what they're doing, and then you you kind of picking it apart in your own ways. And you know, I, I can just I can only imagine the amount of conversations that you can probably hold on to. Now I think you know, I've learned a lot from that one and that one and that one. And over two years, how many of those conversations you may have had, not just with the people that you're working with in the clubs, but also your colleagues. Um, but you know, moving into head of coaching, well, where do you see yourself? You know, is is that the route that you want to kind of follow down with, or is that you know, do you do you anticipate yourself going back into you know? I think I've again. I've probably been really fortunate in the way that um, both myself and the club saw saw the head of coaching role. So I'm really lucky that we managed to, in terms of our organisational plan and, and staffing, we managed to to put an assistant head of coaching role in. So we have a, a lad called Mark Atkinson, who was previously at Sunderland um, and moved across to take up that role with us. Who his his role oversees that nines to sixteens sure. bracket and allows me to focus more on the eighteens and twenty threes, um, which means that we can get out on the grass more. That's it. So so generally in that head of coaching role day to day, I can be outside with the twenty threes or the eighteens. I can I can be at games and I know that I've got somebody I, I, I trust and who fully understands what it is we're trying to do. Um taking care of the the nine to sixteens bit in the same way. Mm. Um so like I say, I think again I've been fortunate that the club have allowed us to to have a model like that where it does allow us to get on the pitch. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And not just either stuck behind a desk or stuck doing the, the, the just the purely coach development side of the role. Because um, I think it, depending on which club you go to, the, the head of coaching role can look, can look greatly different. Um, whereas ours, it, it's you're looking after the football element. So yes, you're looking after the coaches, but you're looking after well, how are the coaches working? How are we playing? Um, what's happening with the players and their reviews and their individual development? Some clubs will have a head of player development and a head of coaching. Um, but for us, we we think we've got a, a model model that works there for us. Brilliant. And you, just, you know, you talked there about your range of experiences and, you know, you started back at 16, you know, you turned 40 yesterday. Um, across all those years, you would have seen plenty of things, both good and bad. And, you know, 
I'm just interested to know now that what, what what's helped you and what keeps you going in terms of keeping you inspired and motivated to keep pushing and I guess be your best. Um, there's already there's always somebody better than you. So you know, looking, uh, I've been fortunate at the moment that I've been able to to be in and around the first team for the last couple of months. Um, just with obviously everything that's going on in the world and, and what have you. So I've been able to see firsthand how how our first team are, are working and preparing, but also then the opposition. And there's always somebody better and always somebody one step ahead of you. And I think that challenge of, you know, t- trying to outthink and outwit who you play, that, that for me, I, th- I think that's why when I was younger, I always, always like Gazetta Football Italia on a, on a Saturday morning. And it was almost like a chess game. You know, in Italy, I, I remember watching the game, really tactical. Some of them still are really, you know, really tactical now. But we have some great, great coaches and managers in this country, English and, and from, from abroad. Um, and some of the things that they're asking players to do aren't necessarily new or rocket science. They're just little slants and little tweaks on things that you've maybe seen before. You know, so when you look at Chris Wilder's back three and the centre-backs are overlapping, I don't think that's relatively new. We just maybe haven't seen it for a while. Yeah, no, you too. Um, so it's, it's, it's how, do you, how do you then prepare for that, but also think about the next level, about, well, how, how are you going to give them a problem? How, what can you do to to try and get the, the, you know, the step ahead or gain the advantage. And, and, and that type of stuff, for me, that's, that's the bit that my, in terms of my love of the game is, is trying to work out all those little tactical nuances that are, that are going on in games, what I would do to, to try and nullify it, but then how you could try to exploit mm. you know, your, your team's strengths. No, definitely. I think you know you talked there about you know some of the things that obviously that, that keep you going and wanting to be, I guess, just be a better, the best, best you possibly can. And obviously looking at where yeah. the other competitors in that, even if they're not directly competing with you, but where the other yeah. might be in, in, on that journey. So I guess you know, on that note, then you know having that range of experience and being able to observe so many different coaches over your years, both as a coach and a coach developer, and now head of coaching. What would you say? And, and I'm you know, we've all got them, however we want to describe them. What would you say are some of your bugbears in terms of when it comes to coaching then? Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, get me started. Yeah, I've probably mentioned a few, but um, yeah, the bugbears. Understand, understand of the game and principles of play, really, you have to be able to work in a logical order. You have to understand the game. Um uh, <laughs> I think just uh, practices that are generic. You know, there's no real... Per- it's just like, oh, we're just doing this because I've seen it on Twitter or I saw this coach do that, so I'm going to... You know, without... Under- like you said before about understanding the why and the context that that one was delivered in. I think those just those generic generic things. Mm. Um, I think this, this notion that... Um, Oh, we, we have to give them a game at the end. Uh, a, a game could be anything. 
if the practice is stimulating and challenging and motivating for the players, they'll be having fun. 100%. So whether you have it, whether you have a game or not, it, it it's like yeah, we know that's the if you're working, you know, grassroots and you've got one session a week, then it's common sense. The kids are there for a game. They're not really after much else other than mm. if you're working in a in an academy environment where you've got four sessions a week. You know, at our at our club, we'll have nights where it's a red night. It's small areas, small numbers, and you're not going anything above four v four. Now that's still a game. Definitely, I think you know one thing for me. I always say to coaches as well is that it's similar to what you just said. That it doesn't matter really. Yes, of course, we where, where possible we want to be playing games, but actually, you can say the players are coming there for a game. But what are they really coming there? They're coming there to enjoy themselves, have fun, and compete. That doesn't have to be in the form of a game. Um, I had a situation recently where I was going to support a coach uh, working on the grassroots side, and um, I was basically doing like a, an informal CPD session for them, and there was no game. And I said, "Well, they said, well, we've got ten minutes left. We're not going to move into a game." I said, "Well, look at what the players are doing right now, and ask yourself: Are they enjoying what they're doing? Are they being challenged?" And it was like, "Yeah, but we always play a game at the end. Why do we play the game?" you probably move on to the game because what you're doing before that isn't stimulating them enough. So they're now coming yeah. to asking for the game. But when you've got a session where the players aren't asking for the game, straight away tells me they're really enjoying what they're doing. They're already in that zone of enjoyment. Yeah. It's not too difficult and it's not too easy for them. Otherwise, the would, you know, players, especially at young ages, for me, I think they're quite, they're quite open and honest, brutally. And they don't mean anything bad by it, but they'll tell you, this is boring or can we do this or can we do that instead if they're not enjoying what they're doing. And yeah. I think, you know, that it's very important that a lot of coaches think about actually what we just spoke about earlier in why are we doing what we're doing? Is this, the, is this session right for the players? Is this game the game that the players need? You know, and, and your point about generic sessions, I mean, I've kind of got to a stage where now I've got maybe six or seven templates for sessions that I use, but they're so flexible and they're you know multifunctional in that I can work on so many different aspects within those sessions. Yeah. But again, coming back to something else that you've touched on, all my sessions are designed around the principles of play. And it doesn't matter whether I'm working out the wide areas, whether I'm working the central areas, whether I'm working the final third, midfield, what doesn't matter what I'm doing, but it all relate back to the principles of play. And I'm thinking and the message you're always trying to give the coaches, if your sessions are not based on the principles of play, then they're not relevant to the game. Yeah. They have to be relevant to the game by directly linking to the principles play. And then you start looking at, again, something you touched on earlier about having those sub-principles or the sub-categories that you then look at. Right, this is the principle. This is what we're looking at within that principle. And this is where it might be taking place. Yeah. Um, you know, so for me, it's always you need to know what you want to see and what you want to work on before you start designing the practice or even think about the practice. You can't pick a practice and say, all right, I'm going to work on this now. And yeah, that's what I find a lot of coaches end up doing. Um, I went on off a little bit of a tangent there, but, um, you know, kind of bring it back to your own journey then. Um, you know, if you now had to go back and look at the start of your coaching journey, age 16, you started to think about coaching, you, you know, do it, taking the junior, t- junior Team Managers Award and to now where you are now, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned along that way? And more specifically, who have you, and you've, you've mentioned some names earlier, who are some of the people that maybe influenced your journey? What are the biggest lessons you've taken from them? Again, probably really, really lucky and fortunate that we had a 
a, a big group of of coaches, coach educators in the northeast, um, who that was their passion, that was their drive, that was their motivation. So, really fortunate to be be part of that group for a, quite a number of years. The likes of Barney Jones, Rob Atkin, Terry Mitchell, and Neil Winskill, you know, people like that in the in the northeast who you got an opportunity to spend a lot of your time with. And we were fortunate that the majority of us were employed by the city council uh, for the football development scheme. So we work with each other day in, day out. So you are constantly questioning each other and, you know, asking why have you done this? Why have you done that? Doing, you know, education courses together, CBD. Um, so really fortunate in that respect. Um, and I think the other thing you asked about things that you've learned. I think there's probably so many, but I think that was because I wasn't frightened to put in the hours and the hard yards. I think there's been a, a societal shift almost where it's it's that instant. I want the qualification. I want a full time job. I want I want to move up and work with the older age groups within three years. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I worked full-time as a community coach, not even full-time initially. I had to earn, earn the right to get a full-time contract where I was coaching 20 hours a week for me full time, for that full-time role, working in schools, working with the, the three, four, five-year-olds, then going to a different school and working with the, the year 11s, um, then doing an advanced session. And then I was racing to uh, doing a session with the academy then I was racing from there to get the second half of a game so I could still play then getting home and, and you know doing the, the coursework for my uh, distance learning master's degree so having to actually put in the hours in the hard yards I think allowed me then to develop at the, at the right rate I don't think I ever tried to do things too quickly. I think the, the junior team managers to level two to B license at 18. I, when I look back at that, I'm thinking B license, maybe. But when I did the course, I thought it was about right for where I was at in my understanding of coaching and football. But I then waited 10 years till I did the A license. So did the B license at 18. The A license, I was 28. But I had another 10 years of coaching experience and a bit more playing experience under my belt. Um, I think then getting the opportunity through the Elite Coaches Award was it was a great excuse for it was myself, Neil Winskill, Liam Bramley, um, all from Newcastle. Um, we were all on the course together, and we used it as an excuse to to get out and see the best in the world at football and and other things. Um, but going and spending uh, some time with uh, Paul Clement, who was with Ancelotti at PSG, then Real Madrid, um, going and seeing uh, Simeone work at Atletico, Neil and Liam went to Juventus to see Conte, I went to Napoli to see um, Walter Mazzari at the time, uh, Matarazzi, sorry. Um, and getting to see those people work, um, spending time in conversation with them, uh, you know, alongside a whole host of other 
you know, people, managers, organizations. Um, we went and saw, you know, the top heart surgeon in Europe who's based at the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle, going and spending time with him about dealing with pressure and having difficult conversations. You know, those types of things where, you know, like you said with these podcasts, you spoke to so many different people. And you just take one little thing from, you know, a little golden nugget from here, a little golden nugget from there. But that takes time. Mm. And it takes a commitment over time to to stick at it and not get ahead of yourself. Um, like you say, I'm obviously a little bit older now. And yes, you know, finished the pro license a few years ago now, but I'm still learning. Mm. And I'm still trying to to speak to to people, to managers and, you know, touch wood when when this whole whole worldwide pandemic thing settles down, then get the opportunity to go and see people work again. Right, yes, you, know, you talk there about, you know, speaking to managers and other experienced people in the game, and I want to end this golden nugget. So question I've got for you now then, you know, if you had to kind of step back in time, um, go back to talk to yourself at age 16, what would be one message that you want to give yourself at that point there? Um, or it could be a couple messages, but if, yeah, if you had it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking from a, a purely personal one, and 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 thinking about. Um, uh, it's going to sound really harsh on myself, yeah, but give up on the playing side earlier, and give yourself an even better chance with it. The coaching now that that's really difficult. Yeah, and I'm guessing the but, question we have off the back of that then is ha- having been through that experience and thinking about that as a yeah. word of advice. Is there a particular type of question or line of question that you maybe want a younger player at that kind of age? Or um, when I when I look back at myself when I was at that younger age, um, I was a I was a decent player. Um, I think I probably had the attributes to play at a higher level, but didn't have the drive mm. and the determination. And, and there could be a whole host of factors for that. I've, I've thought about loads over the years and, and all the rest of it, but, but I've got that drive and motivation for coaching. Mm. Um, but I didn't know that until I obviously stepped into it and, and, and started, you know, had those opportunities so I think it's it's understanding and being you know a little bit more self-aware at a younger age about well what are your strengths and weaknesses what do you have a drive and passion for mm. so do do a lot of young young players just think um, I'm going to be a footballer I want to be a footballer but have they got the drive and the the character and the personality to stick with it and be committed and do everything that's needed now it's obviously it's a lot tougher to reach the top level than what it was when I, when I was younger. Have they got the commitment to do that? Um, I guess. And if they're really honest with themselves, mm. then I think you can come, to, I would like to think that I would have come to that answer a little bit earlier. Mm. Um, you know, on, on that note then, but you know, in some ways you're almost saying give up on your dream a little bit earlier, but at the, at the same time, I think, a lot of people end up maybe not not realizing that. I'm sure, like yourself, like myself, you know, we've gone into we've gone into the coaching 
more for the passion of the game rather than what as an initial initial standpoint anyway. Yeah. Um and I think it's only once we start getting into the world of coaching and the world of football a little bit more, we start to understand actually there's so many avenues we can go down. Yeah. Um, and I think naturally, once you stop playing, your first thought is, all right, I'll, I'll go into coaching. Not understanding there's actually so many different pathways. So, you know, for a young player or a young person to even think, okay, I'm going to give up on my playing a, a little bit sooner. Um, for a lot of them, that might be because they're not really interested in the coaching part. And yeah. I know they're not interested in coaching, but they maybe think coaching is the only way to go with that. Um, so, you know, I think give yourself some credit on that one. That one. <laughs> um, but in terms of the, the coaching side of things, once you've now, I guess, put your, you know, you've dipped the toe in the water and started getting a bit more focused on the actual coaching aspects, what message would you give yourself in regards to that? Oh, um. I'm not sure I would I would change anything, given the like I said before I think I think I've been really lucky in the in the the experiences and the opportunities I've been afforded over the years since that you know since that age of sixteen, you know I've worked with I've worked with every age group and level of player male and female, um, here and abroad. Um, I've got to got to have worked with and seen a hell of a lot of top level managers and coaches and grassroots coaches. You know there there are some, there are some good coaches out there who, you know one one might, might one might be a heart surgeon. So why would he get into football coaching full time if, if but he can still be a good coach. Mm. Um. Uh, I've been really fortunate with those opportunities to to learn off other people and, and to pick up bits and pieces that I, do, I don't think I would change anything about that mm. and about that 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 pathway. Um, like I say, at 25, 26, I think it's a brave decision then to, you know, I'm going to have to cut, cut the playing and, and everything else. I think that's a brave decision at whatever age you do with that. Um, but I think that's fortunately for me been the right decision looking back. Um, so I don't think I'd change, change anything about about that, about the pathway, about the opportunities that I was given to to end up in the in the privileged position I'm in now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know, you, you, just on that, then you're talking about being in a privileged position. You know, you've had a uh, 24 years, I guess, in the coaching world now. Um, in the community setting, academy settings, both part-time and full-time, and now we're working as a head of coaching. 24 years for, you know, someone who's just turned through, still is a hell of a lot of experience already. Yeah. And now long may that continue. Um, I guess the question I have for you now, then, you know, what's next for Ben Dawson? Um, to produce, well, to, to be part of the process that produces... Uh, first team players on a regular basis here I think is the 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 role um, and I think on a on a personal level it, it it's no secret everybody here I, I want to be on the pitch I want to be working as a first team coach um, again 
I, I completed the, the league manager's di- management diploma mm. last year. Um, and as much as part of the reason for doing that course was to see and to pick up some management techniques, etc., for myself, but it just reinforced the thought that I don't want to be a manager, at least not at this moment in time. Um, I don't think I've got the the skill set to be able to do that. Now, I might develop that over time. I might not. But things like I'm really poor at delegating. Now, as a manager, you've got to be able to. You've got to trust other people and get, and get on with it. Um, I'm very much hands-on. I want to be on the pitch. I want to be coaching. And, and that, again, that self-awareness and understanding that role of what I, what I think my strengths are. Mm. Um, so I think that role working in a first team environment where you've got the, the added pressure of at the top level, if, if you're not on your game day to day, the players will tell you if a practice is crap, they'll tell you it's crap. Um, and you're playing for three points on the weekend against some of the best managers in the world. Mm. That's the, that's the next step. That's the next challenge to see whether all of that experience, knowledge, practice, etc., whether you can you can do it when the pressure's on and when the muck and bullets are flying. Mm. Now you make a great point. Then I think you know just coming back to something you touched on there around the skill set and understanding where you're best suited in, in the sense that, you know, you've gone through some of those experiences and identified that maybe management is not right for you and it's not that it will never be right, but at this point in time. Um, and a lot, a lot, a lot of coaches are, are probably still not in the line of thinking of understanding what their, maybe, maybe their strengths are and where their skill sets lie. I'm just curious, obviously, for those that maybe aren't too familiar with the courses themselves and obviously, you know, the UEFA A license is considered the highest core coaching or technical coaching qualification there is. Yeah. You've got the pro license and the, the league manager's diploma, which are more management focus operations. And would you mind just going into a little bit of detail um, around those two qualifications and what they actually entail for anyone that's not too familiar with them? Yeah, so like, like you said, the, when I completed the A license, it was very much about you got all these different topics for 11 v 11, um, which taught you the game at what was supposed to be at the time equipping you to to coach at the top level in that country. So the English FA's A licence is there as far as I'm aware to prepare people for working in the Premier League. Now that's changed over the last few years because you've now got um, coaches who work in the foundation phase who need to have the A licence for their, their, their job, basically. Um, having to complete the A license, so the A license has had to adapt and, and change to to fit what people need. What are your thoughts on that? Um, do you need an A license to work? Good coaching's good coaching. Yeah, you don't. Sometimes you don't need a bit of paper to validate that. Um, but it's part and parcel of the the rules that have been set and. Um the FA has to adapt to that in terms of the provision and, and the support it offers. Clubs have to adapt to that. Sure. Um, Just on, on that note then, surely that's where maybe it's not an A license required, it's probably more an advanced youth board where it's more phase specific. Yeah, and I, I think the, the discussions we always certainly had at when in my time at the FA were you almost don't want to see the two 
as like separate strands. Mm. And I think that's that's people's perceptions is that you've got the advanced youth award way of doing it, and you've got the air license way of doing it. Mm. It should just be one. It should be a look. He has a, he has a knowledge of the game one, and he has the how to how to apply it in the best way possible for the players that you've got. Sure. Um, the the pro license mine mine was probably a different pathway in that I got the chance to do the elite coaches award for that eighteen month period, and then did a conversion to the pro license mm-hmm. on some of the modules that we missed um, around finance, around you know we we still did things around dealing with the media. Mm. Um, communications, etc. Um, and then the league managers has been more of a uh, leadership and management course and diploma. Um, so yes, there has been elements of dealing with the media and preparing for those interviews and and what have you. But there's also been bits around, you know, when you first step into that role mm. as a manager at a new club. How do you manage upwards to the chief exec, to the board of directors, to foreign owners? How do you deal with the different ownership models? Mm. You know, if, if you went abroad, a lot of the clubs are fan-owned or governed, mm. as opposed to maybe one owner in this or a, a syndicate of owners in this country. Or So dealing with all and trying to prepare for all those different scenarios that if you don't know where you're going to end up, Mm. as a coach or as a manager and having to deal with that then you know preparation for that dealing with that the multidisciplinary team so the team of staff around the team which seems to be getting ever bigger you know having to manage all those people and in order to manage them have an understanding of what they do um so there's this obviously you know distinct benefits to to each of the courses um, and it, it it just goes back to what you need for what you think you're going to be doing in the future, or or preparing yourself for any opportunity that that comes up. Definitely. Now, thank you, thank you for that as well. Just you know, just on that, then you know, we kind of, kind of as we start to wind down now, then you know, we've talked about some maybe some messages that you might want to give yourself as a young as a younger coach coming into the industry. Um, if I was to give you sixty seconds now, what will be one golden or you know, some golden nuggets that you want to leave our listeners with. Do the miles, do the hours. Make sure you understand the game. Because if you have aspirations of getting to the top level, if you don't understand the game, the players will call you out on it. Um, and I think try to develop a a self-awareness and an understanding of what your strengths and weaknesses are as early as possible mm. so that you can have a clear a clear plan of how you're going to improve, um, how you're going to make your strengths even better. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.